Welcome to Movies Charles Hasn't Seen, episode 101. My name is Carlson. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. And this week, <laughs> we are discussing the best movies that we saw in 2018. Correct. This is our best of episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, last year, we did a worst of. Right. I think we're all in agreement that Ready Player One is the worst. Right, and we've talked about that movie more than it deserves yeah. already. So Does if you want to need any any more attention, attention, I'd pick something else, but I don't want to belabor the point. Okay. Would, yeah, I'd, probably, yeah. I'd pick Pacific Rim too, just because I was so disappointed oh. by it. That's yeah. fair. I had higher expectations, I think, fair. for Ready Player One. Fair. But there's not a whole lot to say about that movie, really. <laughs> yeah, it's it, very disappointing. We did already talk about it at some point along yeah. the line too. So yeah, yeah no, no more time on bad movies. Let's talk about good movies. Sure. They're better than bad movies. Um, so we're gonna take turns. We have, we have a top five list um, that we've each uh, painstakingly compiled um, over the course of the last few weeks, because this is our return from our break. Crossman has volunteered to go first. We're going to each go one at a time. So Crossman, what is the fifth best movie of the year? The fifth best movie that I, I saw in 2018, um, I, I chose uh, Annihilation for my number five. Okay, that's my number three. That's your number three. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> um, Interesting. Natalie Portman stars, Jennifer Jason Lee was excellent in it. Actually, the whole main cast yeah. was, uh, was really good. I, I really like this movie. It's very um, unnerving. It's horror elements are pretty good and I thought uh, disturbing. Um, I've seen Many people talk about how disturbing the bear attack scene is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it really um, is. That's a top tier scene. That is something that, like, really thought about, well, like, for a long time after seeing that movie. Yeah, I'd, I had a similar experience. Like, part of the uh, big reason this movie is on my list is that there are, like, specific images from this movie that I really haven't have not left me since I saw it. I agree, mm. totally. And we saw it in like March or something. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah it's like, been so long, right? <laughs> yeah, in a year a that has felt so long and the movie has stuck with us. R yeah, like th that's why it's on my list. Like I just haven't forgotten this movie at all. Like I feel like there's so much here that has stuck with me for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, a lot to dig into in this movie. Um, just the visuals and the sense of like, like not being able to be sure of anything mm -hmm. in the movie. Yeah. Um, like what exists, what's real, how much time has passed, um, even what the characters' intentions are and what they're thinking and going through. And that, that in and of itself is like very unnerving. I think it's the atmosphere is set very well by the music in the yeah. film, which is a lot of uh, distortion and like digital sounds, but also like wind chime-like sound. Like it's a lot right. of so yeah. It, yeah. it's it's mixing these like natural sounds with computer sounds, which is kind of what the movie's about. Spot on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, the very interesting soundtrack. Right. Yeah. Really interesting soundtrack. They use the helplessly hoping song from Crosby, Stills and Nash very effectively throughout the movie. Um, which is, again, an unexpected but totally appropriate choice <laughs> for what's going on here. Yeah, I, I adored this movie. This was Alex Garland, um, his follow-up to Ex Machina. Um, which, and is it, also which is also yeah. an extraordinary yeah. science fiction favorites. movie. Um, and if he can maintain this track record, like, he's a very exciting young director right now. Like, I want to see every single thing he does. Yep. Um, uh, yeah. Just extraordinary. Um, this is also a, a great performance from Natalie Portman. She plays the lead, and I think it capitalizes really well on what her strengths are. Right, like in a, a movie that is also good, right? Because she has, I mean, she's got her Oscar nomination for Jackie and things like that, but I think she's a really physical actor. Mm -hmm. I think she uses her body really well. She had another movie that came out this year called Box Lux that 
wasn't as good as Annihilation by a long shot. I didn't, yeah. I didn't get to that, but I heard it was good. It was interesting. <laughs> I did get to it. It was, it was interesting. <laughs> but one of the things it did really well, similar to Annihilation, is that it, it recognizes Natalie Portman's talent as a physical actor. Like it uses her body really well to express herself and to move around in, the, in a space and to change the timbre of a scene. So you mean like the way she's reacting to the scenery around her and things right. like that? Right, and the, uh, like the, the last sequence with like the model and things like yeah, that. Like yeah. that's all just physical acting, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's it's essentially no dialogue during that mm -hmm. sequence, but it is riveting throughout just because of the way she knows how to occupy a space and orient and use her body. And I think that that's a, a strength of this film that is about that has so much body horror and is so much about how our bodies are changing and unknowable and uh, external and alien to us that we have this act actress who can use her body in the way that Natalie Portman does. It was really excellent casting. Uh, so I, I like that a lot about this movie. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is a very strong entry into like the apocalyptic category mm -hmm. in, in that it's um, one of a few apocalypse movies that now do this, but I think it does it very well in that the apocalypse is like not one moment. It's just like a creeping thing. Yeah. And mm. when you're in it, you don't really know that you're in it. That the world's or in that it. you yeah. know that something's wrong, but you don't know what to do about it or even what, what it is. You, yeah, even what's happening. Yeah. Which yeah. I mean, which is why this movie is read, I think, pretty uh, often as an environmental movie, which is apparently stronger in the book. It's more of an environmentalist yeah. Yeah. text. Um, but yeah, just one of many interpretations that this film is open to. When we spoke about the film before, or when I described it, I compared like there's an obvious connection to the um, the Deepwater Horizon accident mm -hmm. that happened in the Gulf because it's like it's another environmental disaster that happened in the Gulf. It's, well, and the, the shimmer in this movie looks like oil. Looks like oil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, yeah, that that still sticks with me. Well, um, I, the member the movie I remember you comparing this to is 2001. Yeah. which I think is there. Um, I think it's more like Stalker. Um, yeah, which I hadn't seen. Yeah, yeah I haven't that's, seen that that's, a, that's a hell of a movie, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he, ha he has like a, a, a breadth of influences, Alex Garland does, because I think there's a lot of Swamp Thing in this movie as well, um, which I may have mentioned on an earlier episode, but there's a, a lot of uh, stuff going on and course, some, coming uh, into an island. Heart of Darkness stuff in there. Apocalypse yeah. Now for yeah. movies. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, uh, last year I predicted what each of your number one movies was going to be, and I was wrong on both counts. This year my prediction was what was going to be on all of our lists, and I thought it was going to be this movie. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> Annihilation is now on your list, Charles? It, it was the one I was kind of vacillating on for number five. Okay. Uh, it was very close. Oh, so that, that, yeah, I, I, swing and a miss it, again. It was, I mean, it was kind of a coin flip at this point. So you can. Kind of, it's like quantum on my oh, list. Okay, I'll yeah, take. You can, I'll take you can some, say that much. I'll take some credit. Yeah. All right, I got. I got halfway there this year. Um, but this was uh, my top three movies were movies I was all very confident about, and this was one of them. Like I knew yeah. as soon as I saw this movie that something very extraordinary was was going to have to happen this year, for it not to end up on my favorite list. I loved this movie. I thought it was really good. I think it's definitely a movie that depends on seeing it big. Yes. Um, yeah, this is another tragedy of distribution for this film. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it, it did not get a wide release. It did not get any theatrical release outside of the U.S., I think. Um, and not in the U.K. anyway. That's tragic. It is. Mm. Um, it premiered, I think it premiered on Netflix in the U.K. the same time it premiered in theaters here. Yeah. Which is a bummer. Definitely. Um, like it should be seen on biggest possible screen with a nice sound system like yeah, you, you nice can get a nice system. screen at home now but it, most people don't have a nice sound system and this this film really rewards it yeah um, yeah like 
the soundtrack I was referring to is when the the alien <coughs> shows up. I think is when the alien shows up or the thing at the end. Yeah. And they Whatever have the, the like kind of electronically processed background music. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I can really describe it because it sounds nothing like anything else I've heard. Right. Um, but like if you're in the theater, there's like kind of a feeling to it because it's loud enough to actually like physically affect you, right? Yeah. And so it, there's kind of a feeling in your ears when you hear that that really puts you in a different space, whereas if you're just viewing it at home, it's probably not pronounced or loud enough to do that. Yeah, unless you invest in one of those fancy sound systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah you need like a big people. sound bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, good pick. I, I agree. That is one of the best movies of the year. Yeah. Um, should I go next? Yeah. Am I going on that order? Okay, so my number five was Leave No Trace. Um, this is a movie that I had talked about a while ago when I saw it this summer. Um, and it, I kind of, like, I don't want to say I forgot about it, but it, like, was always lingering for me. But as I looked at the movies I loved and, like, compiling my list for the things I wanted to talk about, it just kept creeping up and up and up until I realized, like, actually this movie, like, hmm. was really a, a strong entry for me. Um, so this was directed by uh, Deborah Granick, Granick, rather, who also did Winter's Bone. Um, which introduced the world to uh, Jennifer Lawrence yeah. and was also a very good movie. Um, this movie is similar in that it introduces us to a Thomasin McKenzie. Um, she is a young actress who plays much older, or feels much older in terms of just her control of her craft. Uh, the premise of the film is that the Thomasin McKenzie is um, the daughter of the Ben Foster character in this, in this movie and they live in the woods in the Pacific Northwest um, and are eventually discovered by the government and made to not live in the woods in the Pacific Northwest anymore and, and forced into a home and removed from the environment that they're familiar with. Mm -hmm. So it early on feels like this film about uh, the government coming along and telling people how to live, a li live their lives and how that's a bad thing. Um, but wisely, Granick moves beyond that and makes it a movie about community and how, the, and, and the value of being around other people and the value of finding space within the world that you can carve out without being isolated, that you can call your own without cutting yourself off from other people. Um, it also deals with trauma and uh, really trauma specifically and depression. Uh, the Ben Foster character is a, is a Iraq war vet um, and that is not played up, but certainly present in the, in the depiction of the character. Um, it's a simple story. It is subtly told. It is gorgeous to look at because you have all these shots of you know, the Pacific Northwest in the, in the springtime, and like, it, looks, it looks nice. Um, but it feels just like one of those really you know, affecting and thoughtful indie movies um, that, that I think we need now and then. Um, it, it, it's called Leave No Trace. I, it, I don't think it's going to get any awards attention this year, I, but it, it, it really should because it's beautifully directed and Thomas and McKenzie gives a star-making performance. Like She should nice. be getting a lot of work after this. She was very, very good. Um, so I'm sure it's streaming at this point. You can probably go watch it for $3 or something. So, so go do it. Leave No Trace. It was super good. Yeah. Cool. What's up, Charles? Number five. Uh, my number five <coughs> is Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so obviously I'm a big action movie fan, and this might have been the best action movie this year. Um, yes. But uh, yeah, I've been a big fan of... Ooh, Cross I guess you Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> I did see Aquaman. Aquaman but, is dope. <laughs> um, I, I like Mission Impossible a bit more as an action movie. Um, but yeah, I've appreciated the Mission Impossible franchise as it's developed, um, and this one was just thrilling through and through, just lots of really well-executed scenes, um, inter interesting kind of spy movie sort of plot, a lot of, lot of fun twists. Um, yeah, just very well-constructed, very thrilling. Um, 
yeah, this movie was great. Like, <laughs> I thought it was really, really good. Like, I, I like Tom Cruise in general, despite yeah. you know the various Tom Cruise problems out there in the world. Um, and I thought this it, it moves the series forward. It's a great performance from him, just as an uh, talking about people that use their bodies well. Well, fuck, oh yeah, fucking Tom Cruise. I mean, he can run like nobody <laughs> yeah. else, right? Right. Seriously, I mean, there's but a whole video compilation of him running. And, he's uh, very good and upright. He's good at selling tension just from the way he runs. I guess. Yes, yeah. it's very intense. Um, so obviously, we get a great Tom Cruise running scene in this one. Um, Where he that broke one, his ankle. You, you get the added tension of knowing that he broke the fuck out of his ankle. So like, <laughs> you know, my my leg was cringing the whole scene, <laughs> yeah. knowing that it was coming. Um, but there's so many great action set pieces, like. Uh, even just a simple like skydive into the Paris mm -hmm. location, they do that in kind of a one-shot sort of way, right? And about halfway into, I realized that they hadn't cut or anything, and it was just like a really intense and cool scene. Uh, and then uh, the bathroom fight was super awesome, well yeah. choreographed, and there was a lot of there's a lot of heft to it, right? Yeah. Like something about the the punches being thrown felt very weighty and painful, uh, and I like that aspect of it. Um, pretty sweet car chase through Paris. You know, the, the streets are very crowded. Um, and then a motorcycle chase. And then a motorcycle chase. <laughs> yes. So the, the streets are very crowded and uh, it's very <clears throat> tense that way. A lot of scenes you have them weaving through, like, um, you know, pre-made traffic that's kind of going the same pace. And in here they, they use CG traffic instead, and it's a little evident that it's CG, but it's still kind of better than a bunch of evenly spaced cars going at the same <laughs> speed. Um, like most chases do. Yeah, I, I, I remember when a night when I saw this movie, my comment afterwards, like there are multiple sequences in this film that would belong in the canon of like best action scenes of all time. Like, yeah, this it has it's like up there. three or four candidates <laughs> in this movie alone. Um, the other thing I like about this movie is like it, it, it introduced like the Mission Impossible series like has a lot of these small players that like come in and out of it, yeah. and like it introduces several new candidates. For that, that like they can pick up later on in inevitable sequels. Yeah, and, some fun side characters. Right, like and that it, he's like Chris, Mc, Chris McQuarrie is like finding space to like build those characters and like inv in, invite us back into this world, like is is really cool in a series that has kind of had disjointed tone sometimes. Yeah, because <laughs> they they don't repeat directors very often, and they yeah. finally did here. Like this is this is his second one in a row. Um, so yeah, Mission Impossible Five was yeah. great. I, so I saw this recently, okay, and I think it was one of those scenarios where it had been hyped up like very high all throughout the year. Yeah, yeah. And when I saw it, I was like, mm, "This is pretty good." Like, I, I think it's good uh -huh. for sure. I, I don't. I wasn't like, "This is." That's fair. It didn't like blow me away. Yeah, okay. there were sequences I thought were awesome. I'm surprised you waited on it. Um, I liked the the bathroom. Like, I agree with the bathroom fight scene. I think it's yeah. the best scene in the movie. Yes, um, I agree. I, I, I like the skydive before that. Mm -hmm. um, some of the helicopter stuff at the end of the movie I thought was cool. Mm -hmm. What I dislike about the Mission Impossible series is that like everything, all the like, thing that they're dealing with feels like very unnecessarily complicated. Oh well, yeah. Where they're like, oh, we got a nuke, and there's three nukes, and <laughs> we got to disarm them. at the same time. But that's and kind of the appeal like of it, is how hard their task city. is. They're, like, blowing up an iceberg. And like, or that whatever. will destroy the waterbed for the entire world. Yeah, yeah. and um, that, to me, is, like, very con 
distracting and like contrived. Uh-huh. Like I'd rather the story be like I like Mission Impossible One a lot because the story yeah. is like much smaller. It's just like there's a disc. The disc has like all the agents on it, and they need to like retrieve the disc. Go get the sure. disc. And the movie's like about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does uh, have a bit of that kind of superhero movie problem, right? Where the stakes just get higher every movie. Yeah. Yeah. It only gets so high. <laughs> it it really does. I was like I. Uh, I just like don't care if they like disassemble the bomb or not. Like, <laughs> like I know that they're going to. So like, yeah. yeah although they We're, did, they did kind of fake you out at the end, right? Yeah, oh, for like yeah, a second. They, but they, you guys they had me worried. Yeah, sorry. So, I thought yeah. you'd seen it. <laughs> yeah, they they had me worried for a second there. They actually sold me on it because I mean, yeah. there was a lot of implications throughout the movie that it was going to be the end, and so I thought maybe maybe they have the balls to do it. Right. And, and, I, I, think, cool I almost did. hoped it would have been a better ending. <laughs> yeah, that would like, have been. It would have been a much better ending. Um, also, Henry, Henry Cavill is great. Like, yeah. I, I think that what we learned from this movie is that Superman should have a mustache. Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> he, he killed it. He was very good. Yeah. He was and I like that excellent. duality of like a much younger actor right. um, who's like much more physically imposing. Was just taller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Versus like this like aging, ageless like action star. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it really works, and that like I think Henry Cavill is showing a little bit of range here, and that yeah. like he's not just the good guy here; he's he, he's doing more. He's the villain, but yeah. <laughs> he's doing more than just that, and not just being another version of Superman. By like the ninth double cross, though, I was like, all right, I don't even like. There was a lot of shit that. at this yeah. point. Like, that, do like I come on? I like, thought I thought it wasn't that many for like a spy type movie. If you watch like Atomic Blonde, there were like fourteen in the movie at least. (laughs) They all happen in the space of like one scene in the middle of the movie, and then it's like, okay, I guess now we have this nuke. Yeah, yeah. So I think that I agree that that's the weakest point of the film, Um, that all the double crossing stuff. But whatever, I don't care. Like the action sequences are great. Tom Cruise is great. Henry Cavill's great. Alec Baldwin gets stabbed or whatever. Yeah. Well, and again, like the first Mission Impossible, there's like one really good double cross yeah. like in the movie, and it like has so much weight to it because you're like, it's ah. like his mentor or something. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, it's just like, all right, like it we know again. Henry Cavill's got to like double cross. Like it's they they yeah. do telegraph that. Yeah. yeah. But so I I liked it. I I didn't love it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I really liked it. Like I thought I thought it was very good. Um, what's your number four, Crossman? What do we got? Uh, number four is a movie that um, definitely flew under the radar. Uh, it's very weird. A movie called Mandy. Oh, um, I, I, have, I still uh, haven't seen it. All right, I, I so did not see that either. Mandy stars uh, Nick Cage. I think the only way to describe the film is to say that it's like a grindhouse film. Um, it's a revenge tale. Nick Cage is a lumberjack. It's set in the 80s. Um, he uh, has a wife named Mandy. Um, who is uh, sort of spotted by a cult in the specific Pacific Northwest where they live. Um, the cult decides to like kidnap her and mm-hmm. they like break into their house and torture Nick Cage and leave him for dead. Um, it's like a straw dog situation. Yeah, and they, they in, in that scenario, end up killing Mandy. <clears throat> okay, so not um, a straw dog situation. <laughs> yeah, um, and then Nick Cage, uh, left for dead, survives and goes on revenge. Got it. Um, okay. Normal like revenge movie, house invasion movie. What's very different about this movie is um, the psychedelic nature of, of the movie. Um, so there are multiple sequences where characters take acid. Um, there's okay. a lot of uh, like gel color filtering that's being done in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, two thirds of the movie is of like lacks any sort of um, like spoken words or discussion, okay. <laughs> um, 
and we have a just like a tripped out Nick Cage who fights his way through this cult to exact his revenge on them. Wild. Um, there's a chain fight, a uh, chainsaw fight in this Ooh. movie. He's <laughs> um, upgraded that chainsaw <laughs> fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of the violence is um, very gory, but also like clearly fake, mm -hmm. like alluding to its uh, grindhouse nature. Um, there's like weird stuff with the cult. Um, there are giant insects that are used for huh. drugs. <laughs> it's unclear, after a certain point in the movie, it's unclear if anything is real. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's a gorgeous, bizarre film. Do they, do they play the Barry Manilow song? Um, Mandy? <laughs> yeah. uh, they m might. I didn't pick up on that. Okay. Um, that might actually happen, though. That kind of rings a bell. Now I might watch We don't know what's real or not anymore yeah, exactly. anyway, so. There's, uh, yeah. Um, Nick Cage is great, as, as always, doing Nick Cage stuff. Yeah. Um, I wish there was more dialogue in the film, but it's still good as, like, a... You keep expecting him to like launch into like Nick Cage dialogue stuff, <laughs> and it like, yeah, it, like it keeps like teasing that, and then like doesn't. And then he just keeps fail. not talking. That's yeah, <laughs> that is, that's pretty. Um, but again, at a certain point in the film, you just like can't trust if anything is real. Right. There was another uh, revenge movie that came out this year called Revenge, that sounds not oh, identical yeah. but similar. Yeah. And that one was also like bright, bright colors, like that you don't normally expect in like a hyper violent movie like that. Yeah. Um, that one was pretty good too. Yeah, I think stylistically this is like very interesting, and and um, I hope that uh, you know there's more stuff like this. Yeah, it's just so weird. Like it's it's a very bizarre film. It's the strangest film I saw this year. So. Really? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of weird stuff that came out this year. It was a weird year. Yeah. It was a weird year. I, I think this really tops it. Like, okay. You. There's so much like unexpected, strange stuff that happens in this film that, yeah, okay, it's it's a treat. Yeah, yeah I feel I, like I heard very polarizing responses to that movie. That's true. probably because of the weirdness. I mean, that's what happens with weird movies, right? Yeah, it's it's well rated, um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's not like a, I don't know. It's hard to describe. Like, it's a grindhouse film for sure. Yeah. So like, if gory violence bothers you, yeah, Skip you're, it. you're probably not gonna like it. Yeah. Um, it's it's a revenge tale where a woman gets killed. That's problematic. Um, I think they treat it better than most films, and they actually give her like a lot more agency than like a Charles Bronson movie would. <coughs> yeah, there are issues here. Still, stylistically, I think this is one of the most interesting films this year oh. for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, and I, so I, weird. Yeah, I plan to see it. Like I, I haven't like avoided it. This one was the ones yeah. I haven't gotten to. Um, so yeah, I'll check it out. Cool. Uh, right. was your number four? Now, my number four is uh, Madeline's Madeline, which is a movie, also a movie I think I might have talked about before. Uh, yeah. So this one was directed by Josephine Decker. Uh, stars uh, Helena Howard in her first role. Um, she's a young, another young actress. So here we are. Um, same thing with the similar with Leave No Trace and uh, Molly Parker, who we may remember from Deadwood um, if we watch Deadwood. Um, it. Speaking of strange movies, like this is this was a strange movie. So it's a it's a, a movie about acting, you know. So it, it kind of gets up its own butt some of the time. But the, <laughs> the, the premise is that this young uh, Helena Howard character, Madeline, enters into an acting studio that's putting on some sort of production that is not clearly articulated, but being directed by the Molly Parker character, and it follows the relationship between uh, Madeline, the Molly Parker character, and. Uh, 
the Madeline's mom, who's paid by July or Miranda July. Narratively, it's it's pretty loose, right? Like they're kind of make it's kind of about the creation of this play, but the what the play is about keeps changing, and like what she is demanding of the actors, and like these acting workshop exercises that are similar to things that you'd see in like The Master um, keeps changing as well. But what the movie I think is really about is a puberty and maturing, but also the relationship between the artist and the subject, and how much of the subject is how much the subject is giving of themselves over to the to the artist to the director in this case and how much control the director has a right to when that happens and how that 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 control can become warping and damaging and still lead to useful and good art and the complexity arising therefrom um, so it hits on a lot of you know, complex art theory type so is it issues. Is like Phantom Thread like then? That's an interesting comparison, but yes, I think that there are probably, hmm. you could draw a parallel between this and, and Phantom Thread. So yeah, I saw some Phantom Thread, I saw some of The Master, um, another Paul Thomas Anderson, late, later era Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, but it is filtered through a more feminine lens and also just kind of a more strange and esoteric lens. Um, so there, it, it, it's worth seeing because I've never seen a movie quite like it. How it plays with sound design is really interesting as well. The Helena Howard character is hearing things for a lot of the movie. She's just like having auditory hallucinations. Hmm. But the movie doesn't mix the auditory hallucinations any differently than it does the dialogue. So you'll just hear stuff that That's sounds like somebody talking off screen and they're not saying those things or that person isn't there and like there's no way to really tell until the camera shifts or until she reacts to something that isn't actually going on stuff like that so that puts you in the character's shoes in a very literal sense yes it does um, so it it's it's a very rich movie it stands up to multiple viewings um, and and I think it's even streaming on Amazon now so you might be able to watch it for for free um, but the movie's called Madeline's Madeline. Um, it's really good and another great performance from a young actor who should be getting a lot more work after this if there's any justice in the world. Um, what's your number four, Charles? My number four was Eighth Grade. Yes. Uh, I just liked pretty much everything about this movie. Uh, I was really <clears throat> engrossed in the main character's story as she dealt with the challenges of eighth grade and uh, you know that kind of period of life. Um, yeah, the general, like the writing, uh, I was really brought into the character's struggles. Um, it was pretty funny. Still, it's really funny. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, And yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I appreciated most was just how realistic it felt. Um, it felt very realistic without being dry or boring or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a very tough balance to strike. Um, so, like you know, the dialogue felt very real and very, very naturalistic um, and not forced. So, like it included. You know, the kinds of things that a kid um, in our era might say or do without feeling too forced, um, like like in Ralph Breaks the Internet or something like that, right? <laughs> sure. Um, so it, it struck a great balance there. Um, yeah, and it, it was also very good at kind of showing me um, an alternate viewpoint of what, like, you know, growing up might look like, um, like from a girl's perspective, essentially, right? Like, obviously, I didn't live that experience. Um, and uh, it was kind of frightening. It was very frightening at, at many points in the movie, um, like when she was stuck in the car with that dude. Right? The, and that yeah, the really, unforgettable scene. That really opened my eyes to, to you know, what that kind of experience is like, and I think that's important to, to understand. 
Um, and so you get to kind of be in her shoes for that, and it's very uncomfortable. What I remember, there's a lot of things to remember from this movie, but what I found remarkable is that it's, it might be the, literally the only movie I've ever seen that depicts like how young persons interact with the internet and social media in like a plausible way that makes sense. And yeah. I was gonna say that. Yeah. Like this, the message that it is getting across traditionally is a message that would come from like a sci-fi movie. Yeah, you've made like, this point before and it's really interesting. Where Sorry, it's like the, the dangers of technology, mm -hmm. right, is really what this film is about, yeah. among, among other things. I think um, that is there. But it's like an overriding theme within the movie. It's like how um, enticing but da dangerous technology is and, right. and how you interact with it and how you limit its effect on your life is um, challenging, particularly for young people. Um, so I... Uh, yeah, I like that about this film. Right, I think well, it, it does it in such a nuanced way that is it, it, well, it makes it effective, right? Because yeah. like if if he's not if Bo Burnham who directed and wrote this, which is amazing, yeah. if, if Bo Burnham <laughs> isn't depicting that use and that interaction with social media in a way that rings true, his point isn't going to land, right? Like if he's not able to sh to show like how someone might actually just scroll through Instagram and like hit like on every single thing that a person posts yeah. or like post something on YouTube in like the desperate hope that someone will hear their voice out yeah. in, on the wilderness. Like if they if he doesn't show that in a way that's true to life, like then the, the point that he's making here doesn't stick. Yeah, what, what I don't think, <clears throat> and, and this is like way beyond this film, mm -hmm. what, what I don't think is depicted well is the control that these technology companies have. Sure. Like it's depicted in the film as like a kind of a personal choice. It's like whether or not you engage or not, but that's not true. Like you have to engage. Like if you have a friend group in that age, you you have to engage. Like it's it's not a question. And so how you withdraw from these technologies is 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 not, I don't think well answered by by this film. I think it does a mm -hmm. good job of saying that like the the analog is important and, mm -hmm. and an experience that. We should value and and the metaphor in the film is like there's this like card game that she like gives to like a popular girl, and they're like, um, and it, it's kind <laughs> of like, they, like she doesn't like it, right? And then later in the film she goes back to the character and she's like, it's actually a fun game and you should have tried it and mm -hmm. you're kind of like a dick for like not 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 even, not, not even a shot, yeah. yeah. Um, so so I think that that's where the film is trying to go, where it's like we should still value like value the analog, value the personal and face to and face interaction, face to face interaction, which I think is a good message. But that's that's like not the only solution because there there are mm -hmm. other forces that are at, at work that make it a much harder problem to solve. And it's not the, the movie's fault. It's just like there's a larger question of like you personally can't just like make the choice to withdraw. There are other network effects that keep you engaged and right. force you to engage with a private company that like doesn't have your interests uh, at heart. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean, it yeah. even like the movie kind of I don't I don't want to say it touches on that, but like it seems to be saying something about like it's not about withdrawing from it; it's about using it in a healthy way. Yeah, right. Because yeah. she like makes other friends and she like talks to them on the phone and she like has Instagram chats with that guy that she ends up having the chicken nugget dinner with. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, and. So yeah, I think that it, you're right, it doesn't strike exactly to that point, which is a yeah, true point. Yeah, because like, even if you were to use it correctly, it's still kind of creepy that yeah. the kids uh, without agency are, are using an app that 
who's you know created by a company that like doesn't have the rest of the right. And now we know Facebook is like looking at our individual private messages and selling them to Apple or whoever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think the message of the film is good and important, but I, I think there are larger things that it it doesn't touch on that would have been fertile area to go. I hear that. But it's not the only intention of the film either. Yeah, so, and like, and what the the intention of the film it it knocks out of the park, right? Like in terms of it's just depiction of yes. preteen young girl life, like so and authentic and yeah. it's, it, it, it's it, it Yeah, it reminded me of Diary of a Teenage Girl, which did not get the same amount of attention, but should have because that movie was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Edge of Seventeen, which now just feels like a much more watered down version of, <laughs> of Eighth Grade. Although I still like that movie. Um, so yeah, I think what in terms of the primary goals here, no question, A plus. Like it, it, uh, yeah. Eighth Grade kills it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's number three, Rasman? Um, for me, number three was Sorry to Bother You, the Boots Riley film. Um, oh, I which, didn't get around to seeing that one. It is wild. It is wild. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's the movie. When you said that Mandy was the strangest movie you saw all year, I was like, Sorry to Bother You came out this year. Mandy is weirder. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, although there are elements of <laughs> Mandy in Sorry to Bother You, where okay. there's like a certain inflection point in the movie at which you can't trust the storytelling yeah. to be real or not. Um, and man, it drops that like a sledgehammer <laughs> on the audience. It is like yeah. I, I think we yeah. should hold back on the like the big spoiler here. Yeah, it, it ruins the film if you haven't seen it. Um, well, and it's but, so rewarding in the moment. Yeah, I, yeah. I think at its heart, the Sorry to Bother You is a very complicated film. It's about a lot of things. Um, it's about work first and foremost, and the, and the nature of work, um, and the agency and democratic control of of the workplace. The major like conflict in the film is our character gets a job at a a call center and he discovers uh, success as as a calling as as, as an an agent (laughs) Um, and the call center is a terrible place to work and and, um, there's a character played by um, uh, Stephen Yuen who is like fomenting a revolution in, in the workplace and looking to uh, organize. unionize and, yeah. and organize. Um, and our our main character, played by Ricky Stanfield, an outstanding performance, yeah. he um, he's very challenged by this because he um, feels camaraderie among the people that he works with, but also because of his personal success, you know, it's the first moment in which he's ever been like professionally successful in his career. Mm-hmm. So there's like a you know, a, a split that happens where he like wants to support the unionization effort, but he's also like professionally successful, and those two things um, oppose each other because he's pulled out of like the normal stock and trade of the company and is, you know, upgraded to like a premier salesman and um, you know gets the first taste at success where mm-hmm. he can now like afford to have a nice apartment and buy things that like impress his girlfriend and. Um, you know, gives him freedom and agency that all the things that like capital brings. Yep. Um, at at the expense of his coworkers that he you know can't support if he wants to well, be successful. He can't do both things at once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and that it's such a morally challenging movie, right? Because like you're you're on the side of Lucas Stanfield. You want him to be successful and get out of his uncle's garage and. Yes. Uh, he finally gets that, and then as soon as he gets it, it's at the expense of all the people that he cares about, mm-hmm. and that that moral question is so challenging. 
yeah. uh, and the nature of capital, right? So. It strikes yeah. right at the heart of it. I, I, yeah. I mean, we, we opened this with talking about like how strange this movie is, but that we can explain the basic plot and conflict. Like here we have wants and needs, right? Like this yes. is just such clear character articulation while this movie is in fact so bizarre. Like there mm -hmm. are so many weird visual cues. Like the way that he gets the big job is by using his white voice, which is literally just a white guy talking, <laughs> miming along with the Lakeith Snapfield character. It, I, I think it speaks to how well- Played by pa uh, Patton Oswalt is his white yes. voice. <laughs> yeah. it, it, well, it's Patton Oswalt and- um, um, David Cross. And David Cross, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so, but it speaks to how well-crafted this movie is and how good the script is. Boots Riley worked on this script for years and years, like m at least five, I think he said. Mm -hmm. And that he's able to find this and create this bizarre world and make all these esoteric points while still having it so well-grounded in basic, character conflict and basic dramatic theory. It, it it speaks to just how thoughtful he is and how clear his vision for this movie is. Yeah. Um, that that can still shine through so crisply and so obviously. Yeah. The it's there's so many complexities in the movie that are astounding. Um, it has very interesting like racial politics and gets into the racism and tokenism that occurs within um, tech and in workplaces in general, um, how it's hard to find success as, mm -hmm. as um, <clears throat> someone in that kind of environment um, who you know doesn't doesn't have the privileges of like all the white people that work at this company that are like already successful. Um, it's a very clear uh, broadside at Amazon. The company in the film is clearly meant to be Just Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Um, yeah, Army Hammer uh, is the CEO of this company. Yes. Does an excellent uh, Jeff Bezos, or like tech jerk just, CEO. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's more Elon Musk, I think. But like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, just, it's, all, it's all of those things. Right? Yeah, tech douchebag yeah. idiot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, he, um, and the racism in that character and the racism of his like ultimate plans are interesting and multi-layered. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating film and. Yeah. And another Definitely. great, uh, another great Tessa Thompson performance as well. Yeah, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, and continues yeah. to be. Like it's just like every movie. It's like you want yeah. a good movie, go watch a Tessa Thompson movie. Her character is actually <laughs> the most complex in the movie. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure totally what to take away from her character. There's so many things about the story and about the character um, that I'm not totally sure about what to do with it. But I think it's just like challenging and interesting and like an open thread. Yeah. In, in the film. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, that one, that's, my top three were pretty locked in this year, but the bottom two were like any of 10 or 15 movies, and that, that mm -hmm. was definitely one of them. Like, <laughs> I, on a different day, yeah. sorry to bother you, could have been on my list. It's politically a rare film, too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's about, explicitly about unions. Like, when's yes. the last time we got a movie that was explicitly <laughs> about unions that make the unions look unequivocally like the good guys? Not since the 80s, yeah. Not since, what, Norma Ray? Like, when yeah. was the last time this happened? Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, it, it's been a while. Because it usually... Although, it, the, the union in the movie Eraser comes off well. Oh, no. <laughs> the dock workers and they... Uh, <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense. Um, but yeah, because it, it's not like they're the, un the union is good except when they overreach, and the union is good except for the union bosses. It's like they're just good, right? And if you're making the morally correct decision, you are siding with the union in Sorry to Bother You. That's it. Yeah. Like there's no, there's nothing else to it. There's no like complication or any of that bullshit. It's like these are the good guys. Yeah. Yeah, which is a good thing. 
Um, my number three was Annihilation, which we discussed already. So we'll skip right along to Charles. What was your number three? My number three was The Favorite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this I, is my number two. Nice. Okay, nice. Yeah. right on. Well, it'll be an easy transition. Well, I'm glad you saw this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw a lot of hype about it. Um, I like um, the visual style of the movie, and it seemed interesting. And so I decided sure to was. go out of my way and go see it. Um, but yeah, I like. there's so much to say. Like, um, Well, first of all, I did love the visual style of the movie. There's just something about the look of it. Um, so many fisheye lenses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the fisheye lens, the setting was great. Um, the Alamo Drafthouse had a little segment at the beginning before the movie yes. about the the manner that they used and how it's used in so many different movies. But um, it was so beautiful and like it was perfect. It was the perfect setting um, for that kind of movie. It was also like a real location that like. Queen and like visited and stayed at. Right? Oh, yeah. oh really? Okay. Yeah, that part I didn't know. I don't. I don't know if they covered. I, it I heard that, that secondhand, so it might be hearsay. But mm. I, I heard that's like a place that she like actually seen. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's this like gigantic mansion, and there's all these secret passageways, and there's the very iconic like checkerboard floor. Um, there's also kind of a gray tint to the look of the movie that I really like. Um, just I don't know how to describe it or like the effect it had on me. It just, I just love the look of it. Mm -hmm. um, costume design is fantastic. It really brings you back to that era. Um, let's see. I love the performances um, by Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz. Um, and Olivia Coleman, who just won an award for this. Yeah, she got yeah. a Golden Globe. That's the woman that played Queen Anne. Queen Anne, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, but uh, what I liked about it was how the your affections kind of switch mm -hmm. over the course of the movie because at the beginning you know Emma Stone is so vulnerable and uh, Rachel Weisz is like you know very like commandeering and powerful um, and the roles kind of switch over the course of the movie and you realize how manipulative uh, Emma Stone's character can be um, and you see like how much she takes for granted her power she takes her power for granted at the end of the movie. Um, and so your affections like completely flip for them, and I thought it was very effective and interesting the way they managed to accomplish that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah it, it, it was great. This is another one of the like ten or fifteen movies that on a different day or hour could have easily ended up on my list. Um, yeah, I, I loved this movie. I thought it was fantastic. This was number two for you, Cross. This is number two for me. Um, yeah. I like this movie a lot because of like how it treats the royalty. Where <laughs> yeah. 99.9% of films about royalty, like they're the heroes of the film, they're treated well. Um, English royalty in particular is always treated as like the good guys. Um, the stories about them are always like, you know, complex characters. Yeah. And here, like, you know, Queen Anne is kind of a dummy and uh, she's yeah. uh, awful and has no understanding of what she's doing. Um, she's basically Rachel Weisz's puppet for yeah. most well, of the movie. Not just dumb and awful, but ridiculous. Ridiculous. She's so awful. often made yeah. to look absurd. Yes. Right? Like, she has that sequence where she's eating a bunch of cake, she vomits into a vase. Yeah. And then starts eating the cake yeah. again. <laughs> that's, that's how royalty should always be depicted. Because yeah. it's the truth of it, right? Yeah. Where they're like riddled with you know, diseases and right. uh, are mostly useless and like a drain on the economy and are fighting wars that they don't understand or even care to Right, the, the line right. from the trailer where she's like, oh, I didn't realize we were still yeah. fighting France. <laughs> to, to the point where like... Um, you know, you start to feel bad for her by the end because, like, so many people are just like taking advantage mm -hmm. of her because she's so disconnected from reality and you know, thing. You yeah, know, well, and eventually, anything she, eventually she's even disconnected from her own body. Like, the the stroke takes place off screen. 
It's just yeah. like she shows up on the yeah. next scene. She's like, oh, she had a stroke. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. And which is true. Queen Anne had a stroke, but yeah, like it's not a d dramatized. Hero. Yeah. So I I love it. The movie is very funny. It's too. hilarious. It's it's a little hard to keep up with. You have to get into the pace of like the language and they're mm -hmm. fast. It's a lot of like quippy stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be challenging for a lot of audiences, but if you get into it, it's actually like very funny. Yeah, I don't remember um, any specific examples, but I I noted that a lot of the writing was very snappy and like witty, and I yes. really liked that. When they're doing enjoyable. the shooting, it's all like, like they're taking <laughs> shots at each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the the dance scenes specifically are. <laughs> So funny. Yeah. <laughs> where you go to oh, that was a little weird. expect the like very formal dancing that we're used to in movies yeah. like this, and then they just do these absurd, like weird, like, like yeah. pseudo modern dances. dances. Yeah. 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 But well, slow, like they're doing like yeah, yeah like hip hop moves, but like, like very these, slow. These English ballads. Are yeah, and the queen's just like stop, stop, get that out of my face. Yeah, yeah. That great. That's. Uh, yeah, one of the funniest things I've seen this yeah. year. It's so funny. It, and uh, it's such an important step forward for Yorgos Lathamos, too. Because like before yeah. this, he had done The Lobster, he did Killing of a Sacred Deer, he did Dogtooth, he did The Alps. Yeah. And he was characterized in all of those movies with his the bizarre acting style that he directed, right? Where it's just this flat, no inflection, right? Like nobody really has big emotional reactions or any emotional reactions to everything. Like. It, 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 everything takes place in like this really alienating world, and sometimes it's effective. Like in the Lobster, that was it made sense for him to do that. Yeah. Killing of a sacred deer, it didn't, and the movie really suffered because of it. Wow. And it's good for him to like learn that he doesn't need that, right? Like that he doesn't need to do that. Like he can just have his actors yeah. act and like just emote like human beings and still maintain his specific style because this is unmistakably a Yorgos Lathamos yeah. movie, and make a good film and like have good performances that it, oh, you it, reminded it me feels like growth you reminded me they get in a few jabs at the men too uh, like a lot of when jabs. Uh, well a lot yeah, <laughs> yeah but like my favorite was when uh, Emma Stone like just got married and uh, the guys like asking to consummate their marriage or whatever and she's like all right so are you going to you going to rape me or you No that was earlier the point was, she was yeah. she's like uh, he's like oh I'm a gentleman so she's like okay so it's rape then she kind of flops <laughs> over yeah. yeah that's when he's like courting her earlier okay. in the film yeah but that 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 whole theme was like really important throughout the film because mm -hmm. like one of the major things about the film that Emma Stone is so driven by and why she's, she's such a psychopath is like control over your body is so connected to wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. without wealth, you have no power, and therefore you have no control of your own body. And that's like the, to me, was like the major message of it, the film. And that, whenever like, she's she's being punished, she's being punished corporally, right? Like it's always physical punishment. Yes. Yeah. And when Emma's like the things that Emma Stone does are the actions of a psychopath for sure. Mm -hmm. The reason she's doing those things, it makes a lot of sense. Like yeah. you, like it is. Totally reasonable. You. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because of the time, because of the control that she would not have over her own body, if yeah. not for the fact that she, you know, is able to touch wealth, her decisions make complete sense. Yeah. Uh, um, and that th that was like really interesting to see in the film. Right. Oh, yeah. And the, the gender dynamics here really are, I think, also pretty central. Not just in the respect that Craftsman's talking about, but it's almost like they took a conventional, like costume drama period piece and just 
swapped all the lines for the men and women. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, because right? like, yeah. all the all the men in this movie are played small. They're played indecisive. They're played weak. They're, they look, they're dressed they're, very feminine. Kind of whiny. Dressed, yep, they're yeah. whiny. They're dressed feminine. Like they they are presented as women are normally depicted in these very stereotypically bad uh, period dramas, whereas. The women are making all the decisions. They're driving the plot forward. They have the central conflicts. They're the ones that are that we're following along with and whose yeah. allegiances we're tracking. And the men are just executing the wishes of the women throughout the movie. Um, it must be a conscious choice, right? Like yeah. clearly an intended. Yeah, like normally, um, like Rachel Weisz's husband is off at war, right? Normally that'd be like, oh, he's he's a hero. He's fighting for his country. But here yeah. he's just like she's throwing him off as a pawn, and he might die. But she's trying to gain her power, right? Based yeah, off like of that, using him, yeah, period, which is exactly. exactly how women are treated, right? Like, I'll just marry yeah. this lady because she's her dad is powerful or whatever. That we would see in a different movie. The um, fact that it's loosely true is also interesting. There's a lot that's I, like I don't know much about this. There's here. a lot that's like filled in here, but <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, like there was, you know, there was this relationship between mm -hmm. the queen mm -hmm. and, and her advisor. Um, they don't know if it's sexual, but it's been speculated that, that it Probably was. was. Yeah. And then at one point, that woman was cut out of the queen's life, and huh. another woman came in. It was like that general framework is is true. Okay, okay. that is interesting. And um, that's kind of funny. That is kind yeah. of funny. I yeah. like that they like took this and like made this historical fiction version of it, but it's like yeah, kind of an all body of situation. Yeah, this is yeah. like how royalty should be depicted. <laughs> yeah, like this right. is, you know, this, this should be the model going forward. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so no, I, this is, again, easily could have ended and up on compared list. with Mary Queen of Scots. Which was terrible. Awful, <laughs> yeah. right? And celebratory. I didn't see that one because I heard it was of English royalty yeah. and like, oh, they're such heroes of history. Yeah, and just poorly made. Like, you can yeah. set aside like all of the political problems with that movie. Like it's yeah. just not a well-made film. Like yeah. it, it just doesn't function dramatically. Um, I was really bummed with that one. With Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah. Um, There's still stuff that I think about in the paper that like, kind of like, yeah. I'm like, huh, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. Exactly. When uh, the, the very opening is the rooster races, right? Yeah. Uh, they're like racing these roosters around all these books, right? Yes. Yeah. That is so funny. Yeah. It's, and like and, she has rabbits. Oh, no, they're racing ducks. Ducks. Yeah, you're right. Somehow That's funnier even, than what, funnier than roosters. That is yes. funny. Ducks are funnier than roosters. Yes, <laughs> I agree. In the fact that that character who wins is carrying the duck for the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah my yeah. prize duck. Yes, <laughs> it's the best duck. He has it on a leash. It's like, like yeah. an absurd moment. Yeah, it's yeah. like because why not? Why not race ducks? Right? Like, yeah. Why not have that be the thing? It's just it's <laughs> well, absurd. It just anyways. Shows, yeah, it's just the uselessness of right. uh, the ruling class. Right? Yeah. Who cares if you have the fastest duck? Yeah. Yeah. Like all the all their wealth goes to this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was your number two. That was my number two. Okay, great. So, yeah. so I'm up. Uh, my number two was If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, so okay. this, I, have, have either of you seen it? I have not. I've heard great things, though. It yeah, is great. I know it's well rated. Um, so this was this is Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight. Um, we'll see if there's an Oscar controversy this year. Um, <laughs> it is based on the James Baldwin novel of, this, of the same name. It uh, takes place in... It looks like the early 60s, late 50s, around there in New York, um, despite being called a Beale Street Guitar. Um, and it's a, it's a romance. Like it's that, that, and that's one of the things I like most about it, is that it is chiefly and first a romance. It is not also a political drama. It is not also a legal drama. It is not also you know, an action movie. It's primarily about the relationship between two people in this space. Um, so it f tracks really like how their relationship evolves and it kind of plays in flashback a lot of the time because this, this, it's a black couple in the 50s and 60s. 
the um, man in the in the relationship who is played by Stephen James, who I've not seen anything else, I don't think, um, is arrested on false charges. He's accused of raping someone that he didn't actually rape, um, and he ends up in jail. And as opposed to a lot of the other movies that have dealt with racism this year, like Sorry to Bother You, which I think is more concerned with like the absurdity of racism, you look at a movie like um, Blind Spotting, and it's a very it's an angry film. I think that it, that it's kind of furious at the racist society that we live with. What Barry Jenkins has found in Beale Street, I think, is just the profound sorrow. Like it, it it speaks to not just that racism is obviously wrong or elicits anger or elicits absurdity, but at its core, it elicits profound sadness that destroys joy. Because this is this is a movie that has scenes of such exuberance and warmth. And genuine love that you, that the police officers and the racist store owners and the frightened, you know, rape victim are injected into and destroy what is something beautiful. And you see, and, and that that I think is what Barry Jenkins is tapping into. Um, this is another movie. I guess this, I didn't realize I was creating this theme in my list here, but this is another movie with a first time. Act, uh, female actor Kiki Lane <laughs> plays the plays the lead here, and is it, excellent. And it, there's no no other word for it. She just she she finds the quiet humanity in this character who is beaten down constantly over and over and over again. Um, and it it is it's it's a movie that should be seen on the big screen. It's a movie with a gorgeous soundtrack that um, appears in the trailer, so you might recognize it when you go see the movie, but it is used so effectively here, and it feels like an improvement on Moonlight. It just feels like a, a hmm. more masterful and more controlled and a more mature director who is, has a very clear vision, and a, it's directing and creating movies with a lot of sincere love and concern and care. Um, so it, it's absolutely worth seeing. Um, one, of, one of the most gorgeous movies I've ever seen. Uh, so it, if Beale Street could talk was, was my pick. So go check it out. Do it. You think it should like do well at the Oscars? It might. Ideally, I mean, if it were up to me, it certainly would. Yeah. Um, it's competition. I mean, I think we might end up with like a driving Miss Daisy, do the right thing situation this year uh, uh, because we have Green Book, yeah. which won at um, Golden Globes, and I read some interesting criticisms of that film. Where it's like yeah. Yeah, where it's a lot of like racist apologism for white people. Right, that yeah. makes you feel better about not being racist or yeah. thinking yourself is not racist. Um, and like Oscar like voters are, like, well, yeah, it's better than Crash. But right, well, yeah. like Driving Miss Daisy. Right, like yeah. the, I think that's the point. Of, there's literally a white guy driving around a black man here. They just switched the fucking race. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think there are a lot of Oscar vo voters that are going to want to vote for like one black movie, and they're going to look at the slate this year, and they're going to see Blind Spotting and Black Panther and Beale Street and Green Book, and and they're going to say, oh, well, I'll, I'll pick, pick the most white friendly. I'll pick one, one of them, <laughs> right? And like, even if they decide that they do like Blind Spotting more, they like Beale Street more, there'll be somebody else. They're not going to vote for both. Sure. Right. Or well, Black Panther is going to crush that like popular film category. They got rid of that. Oh, yeah. they did. They're not doing that. Oh. Yeah. Wisely. They're not. They're yeah, not doing okay. that. Um, so maybe next year. But there was such a negative response <laughs> that they decided to axe right it like me. a few days later after they. Oh, okay. I didn't it. hear the axe. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't that's, do that. That's they a relief. Yeah, that is a relief. It was basically a category made for Black Panther. Though. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. why it existed. They're like, oh, we can't give this superhero movie. Uh, <laughs> an Academy Award. You have to make a special one. We can't be the MTV movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I, I could see Oscar voters doing that, where they're yeah. where they're saying like, oh well, uh, 
I'll vote for this movie and best director, or this other movie and in best picture, something like that. Um, but my favorite, uh, or second favorite this year was If Beale Street Could Talk. Super good. What about you, Charles? What's number two? Uh, my number two was Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse. Um, I was really blown away by the animation style, first, things, first thing first. It was very unique to this movie. Um, it's just very vibrant uh, and very comic booky. Um, and I really love that about the movie. It really made it stand out. There's, it was just so beautiful. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the, the plot was great. Um, I, I was really drawn into Miles Morales's like rise into becoming Spider-Man. Immediately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's kind of like cast alongside the traditional Spider-Man stories and some of the other like alternate Spider-Man stories. Um, which is like a fun take on the universe since we've had so many Spider-Man movies lately and so many like takes on the Spider-Man universe. Um, so it's kind of a funny sort of meta take to have multiple Spider-Man origin stories in one movie, but it's funny to see them done and mm -hmm. like referred to and all that. Um, all in all, just a very fun movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen Spider-Verse yet? Yeah. yeah okay. I, I, sure. I liked it visually. It's awesome. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, its visual storytelling is, is impressive. Another Nick Cage movie. Yeah, yeah that's yep. true. Yep. <laughs> He's Spider-Man Noir. Yeah. And, uh, we got, it was a good cast. It was like him and John Mulaney. Um, and Jake Johnson was Peter Parker. Jake Johnson plays Peter Parker. Uh, the, uh, who plays, I think Miles Morales, I, don't, I didn't recognize his name. Um, yeah, I don't remember who did the voice acting for that. Right, but Catherine uh, uh, Hahn, I think. Catherine Hahn it plays the, um, I don't want to give the spoiler, but the Olivia character. Yeah. Um, yeah, like it was a right cast. Also, um, the this is a Lego movie directors, right? Phil and, yeah. They were, they were fired from the solo movie. Yep. And they were given, yeah. given this to do. And it's like, wait, but this is so much better than the solo movie. Mm -hmm. right? So you like, wonder what could have been. What could have been. Yeah, yeah like they, they've been knocking it out of the park for years now, right? Because they, they didn't direct this. They wrote it. Um, so yeah. somebody else directed it. But like they had a lot to do with it, obviously, because it feels like a Lord and Miller movie. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, because they had this, they had Lego movie, they had uh, Batman, Lego Batman movie, which was also really good. Yeah. Um, and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs before all of those. Which were was actually good. good. Yeah. 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 If you watch them, they're actually kind of funny. Yeah, they really work. <laughs> they're definitely aimed at a younger audience than these movies. Right. But fine. They're, they're still fine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, th they are a reason to go to a movie now, and I think it's not even close. Like, if you see their name attached to something, you should go to it. Particularly animation. It's, yeah, especially yeah. animation. Yeah, um, definitely. I the the one thing that like got me kind of hung up on this movie was it's very friendly to police officers. Yes, um, where like they're seen as the heroes and people that we should trust and uh, are going to do the right thing. And I, I did I, they show I up beyond that, just like, uh, the character's father? Yeah, yeah, that, but, they, but he rep, like. No, okay. Not really. Yeah, I, I agree yeah. that that's problematic. I think that they're trying to downplay it because he's not a hero because he's a cop. Right, he's a hero because he's a good dad, right? And I, th I think that like they're drawing from the source material, and he's a cop in the comics, and like they can't yeah. they can't change that, and it's fundamental to him. So I think it's still correct to criticize that, um, but I think that the movie is trying to get around it. I don't think the movie I don't see the, I don't see Lord Miller as embracing that narrative. Yeah, yeah. It, it still felt like very friendly to police officers for characters that like should. Yeah, I, I don't know, like. Yeah. It, no, I, I hear that was like the one like troubling. Part I hear the point. I was like, just make him a fireman. Like, <laughs> like you can do the same exact story. The, the, the other good choice they made is they never said the dad's full name, 
because in the comics his full name is Jefferson Davis. And I oh, don't understand That's why. Strange. <laughs> it's so weird. And oh, so Miles Morales is Miles Davis. I guess so, yeah. yeah. I hadn't made that connection. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like that's the dad's name, and which is really weird. Yeah. Um, but other than those, like, pretty minor quibbles. Like, also, is it kind of like a pro-charter school movie? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does end up it, at a charter school. It doesn't, like, say it. And there are kind of these, like, magnet schools in, in New York. So right. Maybe it's not, but I don't know. Those are the one two things. That's, like, me thinking about the movie too much, but... No, I mean, it's fair, but that's yeah. not what the movie's about, right? Like, and, yeah. and really what we're seeing here is another movie that just understands the, like, textbook 101-level drama, drama, right? Like, you yeah. present a character, you give them a need, you give them a want, and you place those things in uh, conflict. Particularly yeah. the uh, villain in this film who is, like, sympathetic. Like, mm -hmm. what he's doing is, like, reasonable. Well, like, to some like, degree. The, yeah, but he's like, his yeah. desire is reasonable. His desire is reasonable. He's yeah. willing to sacrifice everything to get his family. Get, he just goes to the villainous ends to yeah. try to accomplish that. Right, and, and you, you see the tragic character. You see the tragedy of it because it was his fault, right? right. Yeah, yeah, like he he did the thing, so he feels his guilt. He knows he brought it on himself. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, and, and that was very compelling. Like, yeah, it, I, I like. That I liked about how it. concisely uh, they communicated that because the villain yeah. actually gets very little screen time, mm -hmm. but they just have like two scenes and it's all set, and I'm sold on it. Yeah, well, it's Leif Schreiber. Like Leif Schreiber is. Speaking of great casting, right? Like yeah. he kills it as as Wilson Fisk in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, what I found most successful about this movie is how well it picks up on the Sam Raimi movies, right? Because Spider-Man Two before this movie was the best Spider-Man movie, and I think it's not really <laughs> that close. And the reason that those Spider-Man and Spider-Man Two work so well is that they speak to the actual cost of doing of doing good, right? Mm -hmm. Of doing the right thing. Yeah. And this movie does too. That it's hard. That it, it takes more than just having a desire to do what's good. You actually have to make sacrifices, yeah. tangible, real sacrifices in your life. You actually have to learn something and get in touch with who you are and what is motivating you. And this Sam Raimi did that, and Lord Miller did the same thing here. And that that's something that I think the MCU has never really gotten right. Mm. And it's. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Until Black Panther. Until Black Panther. He does a good job of, like, this has been done so many times before. Yeah. How do you deal with that? And yeah. And the, the whole structure of the movie is, there, like, how, here's how you deal with it. Yeah, it gets yeah. with it very well. Yeah, like, the, it, um, and it's funny the way that they deal with it. Right. And that's just, like, it stands on its own. It, if you've seen every MCU movie, it still works. If you've seen every Spider Man movie, you see the conversation there. Yeah. If you've seen the comics, that's still rewarding. They also like, directly yeah. go at the Sam Raimi movies, like, mentioning them. That directly there's direct references, them and, yeah. mm -hmm. and kind of making fun of them in a way that is good. Right, but like they're the most clear spiritual. That's what they're drawing from here. Yeah, is the Raimi movies. They're they're like ignoring the Amazing Spider-Man movies. They don't even really care about the Tom Holland movies. Yeah, it's really mm -hmm. just all Sam Raimi here. Um, to which is a good choice. <laughs> they're the best ones. Yeah, yeah. All right, Crossman. What's number one? What was the best movie? Uh, number one for me was uh, Den of Thieves. Really? Yes. Okay. This is a surprising movie for me, and I was found it to be. Uh, it, it was astounding watching okay. this movie. I, the action set pieces in this movie were the best that I saw all year. Um, the, uh, it's it's so intense and like really builds in a way that is. <coughs> I don't know. It's just like so like the way the. Um, so the, the the general plot of the movie, um, I've already spoken about it at length, but like general plot of the movie is, the movie opens with uh, a robbery of a, of a bank truck. Um, 
great action set piece. <laughs> Very effective robbers who are using um, you know machine guns to take down a, a bank truck. Mm -hmm. Very effectively do so. Um, the uh, then there's this like sheriff uh, played by Gerard Butler who's introduced and he leads a team of kind of like ne'er do well. Uh, sheriffs who are uh, <laughs> gather up a posse, <laughs> extremely yeah. corrupt and are boozy and treat their families poorly and are are bad. But um, mm -hmm. uh, they come in to investigate, and it kind of turns into like Gerard Butler's like white whale that he's like pursuing throughout the movie. Um, they begin to like understand who the crew is that took down this mm -hmm. this truck, but they don't understand why why they did so. Um, and we get to see both sides of it. So we see the crew as they begin to plan for their like ultimate heist that they're looking to do. Um, and then the two groups start to like cross paths in Los Angeles in ways that like build tension. Sure. And there's like a lot of machismo like parallels <laughs> between the two lead the leaders of, of both groups that were okay. or inevitably will end in violence. It sounds um, like the shield. Do you see the shield? Uh, yeah, it's got a lot of elements of the shield, um, yeah, which is great. Most people have compared it to Heat, right? Um, yeah, it's set in LA. It's about bank robbers. It's about two crews. It's, you know, you can't right. compare it to Heat. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that one's clear. <laughs> Pablo Schreiber plays the leader of the other group. He's uh -huh. excellent in it. Um, and then a great, um, great roles by uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who's okay. um, a part of the crew, but like gets picked up by the sheriffs to mm -hmm. like spy on the crew, and like his his role is really interesting because he needs to like play it really tight. Right. Um, really good performance by Fifty Cent. Um, Fifty <laughs> sure. Cent's in this movie. Uh, um, he's, Didn't know he had it in him. Yeah, he's he's good for this role. I don't know if he's like a great okay, yeah. uh, like actor, but he pl he plays it really well. Um, and then when we get to the actual point of the inevitable heist that takes right. place. Um, what I think this movie does well that other heist movies don't do well and other like action movies in general don't do well is showing how dangerous um, you know these uh, the things that happen in action movies are often played like oh you know if you just like land the right way you're fine mm -hmm. or like you know there's no like public that's gonna get injured by you know the action that's there's happening no cost. in your film yeah. yeah. Um, like Fast and Furious, they drag like a bank through Rio. Nobody gets hurt, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what, lucky. what I think this movie uh, uh, highlights really well is the cost on the public and the people who sure. are sort of like innocent bystanders mm -hmm. of you know these action set pieces that normally happen in action films without any blood, mm -hmm. um, and it it plays that really really well. Um, Gerard Butler for me now is like if he's in anything I'm gonna go see it. Like he's such a great performance in this film, such a scumbag character. <laughs> he, he plays it so well. Okay, so, so well, yeah. Geostorm Two is on your radar then. Oh, for sure. I <laughs> love Geostorm. One. I, know, I, I, I know you do. I know you do. Um, <laughs> this film is great though. It's actually a good film. Okay. It's rated poorly. It's not. It was not received right. well by critics. But I, I think that is a big mistake. I think it's one of the best mm -hmm. action films that I've seen like a long time. Okay. I, I remember seeing good reviews of it. Yeah. So like, not everybody was down on it. Yeah. But you were certainly the only person I've seen put it on the, a list at all, an end of yeah. year list. Certainly at number it's, one is. It's so good. Like if you if okay. you're just like a fan of action films or heist films, yeah, this is a great action. Film. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I'd, I remember you mentioning it. When he saw it a few weeks ago, whatever it was, yeah, um, and now now remember it, put it on my list, yeah, because Den yeah. of Thieves, Den is, of Thieves, is awesome. Okay, right yeah. on. Who directed it? 
Um, I know you have IMDb open, so I don't mean to it's put you on the spot. Christian Goodgast. I don't know who that is. Um, who directed <laughs> other Gerard Butler films. Yes. Some of which are not very good. Um, London Has Fallen, A Man Apart, Beyond okay. the City Limits, and Soldier of Fortune, the TV movie. So, <laughs> okay. Nice. Not much. One of his earlier credits we're seeing here then. This is uh, the beginning um, of his career. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how he pulled this off. I think a lot of it is on the back of uh, Gerard Butler here. His performance yeah, is just so strong. Charismatic. Um, and the other yeah. people around him are really, really good. Um, you just so, ingredients, right? Yeah, I think yeah. very strong cast. And then it's, it's you know, it's in some ways the plot is predictable because it's like a heist movie mm -hmm. and an action film. But I think it engages with that well, like he does, and does things that, like, you don't expect like in heat when they like just take out the automatic weapons and then just like shoot up the city <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. like they really go go there right yeah and this is one of those films that like they're willing to go there okay mm -hmm. and i think that's what's great about it right on yeah sweet okay my pick number one You're all number right one. Uh, first reformed like it's definitely first reformed okay like I, I knew it as soon as i saw it i was like this movie is exactly the kind of thing that i like it's hitting on so many buttons for me um, I started like before the summer, I think, is when it came out, and like I was dead certain, like <laughs> I'm not going to see anything that I like more than First Reformed this year. I tried to fit in a lot of films before this conversation, yeah. um, just to try and watch things I heard were good. This is the one that I did was not able to fit in. Well, and I, re I regret it because I've only heard great things about this it's, film. It, it yeah. is phenomenal. Um, I think it's streaming on Amazon, like just for free, like if you have a Prime account. So yeah, like go go watch it. Um, it is uh, Paul Schrader in what he thinks is his best movie uh, that wrote and directed it. Uh, Ethan Hawke in what is the best performance of his career. Easily in a career of strong performances, he plays a priest uh, living in upstate New York um, in a small kind of failing parish. One of his parishioners approaches him, uh, a woman played by Amanda Seyfried, and says that her husband is having a crisis of faith and wants to speak with the priest in their home. So, Ethan Hawke goes to speak with this priest or to speak with this parishioner. Um, and he explains that his wife is pregnant, the Amanda Seyfried character, and that he thinks it is unethical and immoral to bring a child into the world because of global warming. He thinks that the, the world is going to end before this child has a chance to live a full life and that this child is also going to introduce more carbon footprint into the world and that it's just an immoral act to have children at this point. He's taking an antinatalist position. And the philosophical issues that that movie, or that that point raises really drive the movie from there. So Ethan Hawke gradually, uh, I don't know, studies what's going on and grapples with how the facts that he is learning and the points that this man is raising interact with his faith and like what does he owe to God, what does he mm -hmm. owe to his community, what does he owe to the world as a person, as a priest, as a theist, as a Christian, and what logical points, what extreme points does that lead him to? Um, and it gets pretty extreme. Um, so what I like about the movie is, well, yeah, I'm just kind of fascinated with theology and faith in general, especially Christian mythology, and this movie deals with those ideas in very serious ways. Um, so I think there are, there, there is this category of Christian movies out there that like aren't concerned with faith and aren't concerned with dealing it, with it in a real way and are more concerned with Christian propaganda. And then there are other movies like this and Silence and Last Temptation of Christ that are actually unpacking the complexities of what it means to do good within the context of 
an imperfect world and within the context of sincere religious belief, um, and how that religious belief can become a political belief and how they can reinforce one another. Um, I don't want to say too much about it because it takes some very unexpected turns at numerous points, hmm. um, but just suffice it to say that I've, I've never really seen anything like it, although it does draw clear influences from Diarabic County Priest, Taxi Driver, things like that, which Paul Schrader also wrote, made him famous. Um, and it is, it, it should be watched. It, it, it should be mandatory viewing because the, mm. the points that it raises are true, are <laughs> accurate, and I think things that we need to be dealing with in the real world in an actual way, um, and possibly in the way that Ethan Hawke, the Ethan Hawke character suggests here. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, go see it. It's streaming on Amazon, so there's really no excuse <laughs> at this point. Um, and it's just an absolutely riveting film. I knew it would be my favorite as soon as I saw it, and I was right. Do you, um, do you think that one will get more Oscar attention? Because I feel like it didn't make any splash at the Golden Globes. Um, I, it might get Ethan Hawke an award. Um, Paul Schrader has inexplicably never even been nominated for a writing award, mm -hmm. which is mind-blowing. Um, so he, it, he, he's campaigning for that, like there's a, there's a campaign out there for it. Um, if it gets one, it'll probably be for Ethan Hawke, but that award is kind of reserved for Bradley Cooper, I think. Oh. <laughs> I think that he's got that one locked up. I think of all the films that we discussed so far, I think The Favorite's the only one that has like a real chance of winning some things. Yeah, I mean, it's just for the woman that plays Queen Anne, I think. Yeah, the, I mean, Annihilation might get visual effect nomination, but probably not because like yeah. nobody watched it. The um, <laughs> Spider Verse will get animated, the best animated. Yeah, for sure. Nom probably at least a nomination. Nominations should be clear. Yeah, it will be competing against The Incredibles, which will probably win. Uh, probably that movie, win, like, but the, it's a much better film than The Incredibles. Uh, yeah, the, the yeah. Ralph movie. Um, it'll probably that that one sure. might get up there. Like. I don't it was know if an it was animated the, movie those made this year. So yeah, I don't know if it was animated. like the strongest year for animated films outside of Spider Verse, which is might be one of the best animated films ever made. Um, but yeah, like this one, I, it's too politically extreme, too religiously challenging. Uh, it, it, it's it, I think it, it's something that would turn off a lot of academy viewers and voters okay. but I thought it was absolutely extraordinary and everybody should watch it so first reformed go watch it immediately turn off the podcast don't listen to Charles go watch first reformed <laughs> hey 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 <laughs> uh, no I'm kidding now that everybody's gone Charles what's your what's your movie uh, alright my favorite movie of the year was Bumblebee Really? Uh, yeah, Whoa. I loved this movie. <laughs> okay, uh, it. I mean, if you know me, you know that this is the kind of movie that presses my buttons just right. Sure. Uh, it's got giant robots in it. It's in the eighties. <laughs> like, it. It was so good. Like, it's the. It's one of the few movies this year that really grabbed me by my heart. Okay. Um, and I really appreciated that aspect of it. There's very few movies that managed to do that. Like, I don't think even The Last Jedi did that. Oh, man, I love that movie. Uh, as effectively as I wanted, it, wanted that, to. Uh, that, like, there's movies that I would say grab my brain and, like, I appreciate them for, like, you know, theoretically what they're trying to tell and, mm -hmm. you know, like, the complexity of the writing and things like that. Um, but that's a very different feeling from when a movie grabs me by my heart and I really feel an attachment to the movie and that's what Bumblebee managed to do very effectively. And it made me kind of sad to imagine what you know, all the Michael Bay Transformers movies could have been, yeah. been if he had no involvement in the, in the franchise. He's still a producer here. Yeah, but like he, as far as I'm aware, he didn't he's, write he's or like, direct this movie. Hands off, luckily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, you know, you don't really see any of his trademarks in here. So I guess I haven't been summarizing my movies, but in this one, 
Um, Bumblebee is sent to Earth to set up a base for the Autobots in their resistance against the Decepticons. And um, Bumblebee gets found by um, a high school girl. Um, and Haley she, Seinfeld, right? Haley Seinfeld, yes. Yeah. Um, fantastic performance. Uh, I know that you're a big fan of her. Yeah, she's great. She does a great job. She, um, she finds Bumblebee and um, discovers that Bumblebee is a sentient robot and that Decepticons are chasing... Decepticons and the U.S. government are trying to find Bumblebee because the Decepticons are, are working with the government. Led by John Cena. Led by John Cena. <laughs> really? Um, and so, this is, so you've oh. commented on like Transformers being very pro-military, and this is kind of the opposite, where the bad Transformers work with the military to try to find Bumblebee, yes. and the Decepticons are like, I, I assume that they're like some sort of fascist presence on Cybertron, and that they've taken over. They also show the military to be kind of dummies. Yeah. Like they're Wolves pulled over on their eyes, like pretty. Yeah, because they're. Easily. I mean, they they like they're, follow they're the Decepticons, and they go like, "Oh, you don't want this to fall in the Russians' hands." This is set in the '80s, and they're like, "You don't want the Russians to find these, right?" Yeah. And then they just so get, they, like, get totally them. duped. Yeah, totally. Like, very obviously. Yeah. Um, like one thing very I love was they address like the point where John Cena's like, "They're called the Decepticons." Doesn't that raise any red flags <laughs> for you? That that was a great little moment. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they they. Um, they hide Bumblebee until they get discovered, and then they have to prevent the Decepticons from um, calling for assistance to destroy Earth, essentially. Okay. Um, and so that's the ultimate plot. Um, but the most important part, and what makes this movie so successful, is the human element of it, because uh, Haley Steinfeld's character is very interesting, very well written. Um, you really, I was really drawn into it, uh, where she has lost her father mm-hmm. uh, and has to cope with you know, her mother having uh, remarried with a different man and, like, her new family, and, you know, she's, like, reacted to it by becoming, like, a very isolated and kind of, like, punk girl and not interacting with her family at all uh, and uh, trying to hide from her past and that sort of thing, right? And over the course of the movie, she interacts with Bumblebee and kind of learns how to deal with her new family while still not forgetting the memory of her father and things like that, Um, and I thought that was very effectively done. It was very touching. I was very drawn into that story. Um, and obviously, you know, the human element was what was missing from the original Transformers movies, right? And that was just a lot of metal clanging together. And, <laughs> and um, you don't really have that kind of, like, attachment to what's going on in the movie because that was missing. Um, but it's here in spades, and it was very well done. Um, there's lots of other aspects of the movie that I appreciated, like... First of all, the beginning is um, the war on Cybertron, and obviously I love that kind of like CG heavy, like sci-fi action stuff. So it's like this like robot planet, and all the Transformers are fighting each other, and it was super cool. And uh, it wasn't the point of the movie. I just I would like to see more of that. It was very cool. <laughs> more giant robot fights. Right, right. Well, it wasn't the point of the movie. Eight other movies. I, I appreciate that it wasn't the focus of the movie. It right. was the movie was better for it. But I'd like to see like maybe a separate movie that talked about that. Well, it was just such want, a cool scene. If you want like sixteen hours of it. I know, yeah, just yeah. Well, <laughs> this was better. Well, better done action than any of those okay. original Transformers I movies. Actually, so I saw this. Yeah. And I actually didn't like that yeah. intro. I thought that there's like a point at like ten minutes in where. They introduce um, I, I think they could have just started with Haley Steinfeld introducing her and just her, yeah. her finding the car because yeah. there's a lot of setup before that there's the war there on is. Cybertron there's the introduction of like John Cena and like his squad <clears throat> and all that Yeah. and then there's like another fight after that and then <laughs> Bumblebee goes into hiding and then we introduce Haley Steinfeld yeah. and I was I was, um, I was like okay here we are thinking back on it I was like we could have we should have just started with with her 
with her because like we don't I don't think we like learn anything from those other things I think it's just there to like kind of apologize to the viewer to be like some if of you that, haven't seen any of these before like this is what's happening I mean there's I think the intent was and, and, <laughs> and they fight yeah, they I think fight. the intent was well but, first of all you, it's fan service Right, like yeah, it, Transformers it, fans yeah. want to see the Transformers. They want to see them fight. Otherwise, you'd kind of just see three Transformers I, the whole movie. I, I think I think it's also trying to explain it for the audience. That's like this is their first Transformers movie. Yeah, that or too. Transformers media. I um, think that's why they do all those things. But I think it was also effective good. in showing the kind of desperation of the Autobots because they're all like dying and getting killed off, and they're being sent out on these escape pods to try to fight for survival. Right, and yeah. so you kind of see. Um, like how important Bumblebee is because he is really kind of the last hope for the Autobots at this point in the movie because they're all getting killed off. Um, and so that kind of adds to the stakes of Bumblebee's survival in the movie. Yeah, I, I think it fixed a lot of the issues of the other Michael Bay movies being that there are too many Transformers in those movies. So That's true. Like it becomes still hard That's to certainly like true. track who's who and who's on which side and they yep. don't wear jerseys so it's like impossible <laughs> to tell like yeah, why one is true, the other. Um, and well, so this well, the one it's like... Well, were like super gray. Well, yeah, there, there are other Transformers in this movie but there's really only three. There's Bumblebee yeah. and then there's like two that the are like kind of looking for Bumblebee. Yeah. Um, and so that like fixed... Uh, fix like that issue with Absolutely. Transformers, which was good. Yeah. Um, to me, though, the moments I liked this film the most was when it was just aping E.T. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the, what it looked like in the trailers. Yeah, I know that the movie is basically yeah. like E.T. And or like I, I guess I don't uh, remember, or I don't, I don't, I don't know if I've seen the Iron Giant, but it's very similar to that. It too. is a lot of Iron Giant too. Um, but what's the the best parts of the film is just when it's Haley Haley Seinfeld and Bumblebee, and they're just like. Kind of like dicking around her garage. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, just like um, he's like learning what TV is, and like like a lot of like ET sure. moments. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I liked that a lot. Yeah. Or I mean, when they were like exacting revenge on like these like mean teenage girls. Yeah. That's like when the, the movie's the really good. Girl. <laughs> uh, and th those elements are fun. The other stuff when it's like robots fighting, I was actually like, man, this is just like a normal normal action Transformers movie. Yeah, um, but like I'm already sold on that, right? But the yeah. human, like I, I do emphasize <laughs> that, that, like, the parts that you mentioned. Normally that would be very appealing to yeah, me. Yeah. And then this time around I was just like, meh. Like, uh, okay. I, I wasn't really like, getting much out of that, I feel like. Okay. Um, but I, I do like that when this movie's small, it's really good. Really, yeah, yeah. really good. I mean, I yeah. do emphasize that my favorite parts were still when it was just Haley and Bumblebee interacting. But yeah. I'm mentioning aside that I also like the Cybertron action yeah. scenes. I wanted to mention that I like that they revised the design of the Transformers a little bit, so they look closer to the Gen One designs. Yeah, they um, look so like they're the less toys. like a million different metal pieces, like in the <laughs> original Michael Bay film. So it's easier to tell who's who, and they're more colorful. Yeah, they're blocky. And they look to like read. shitty. Yeah, which is good. Like they don't look too slick when the, the issues. Yeah, the early exactly. Everything in the early Transformers, and with the later ones, like number three or whatever. Yeah, they're like able to like mimic organic things. And it's, it's like what's it's even a the little point? Weird. No, yeah. I don't. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. So um, I love the design. Um, it's also set in the '80s, and I love that kind of thing. There's a lot of '80s music, uh, which Sweet. is obviously really, really good '80s music. Yeah, though. like uh, not. 
not the like annoying 80s music yeah. that like everybody expects and is expecting. They kind of make fun of that actually. A little bit. And then the songs that they choose are actually like really good. Like, yeah. Really, really good 80s. I music. also heard that yeah. they brought back the Stan Bush song from the original uh, Transformers animated film, which is like a big deal for Transformers fans. But I was oh, in the that, bathroom during that, that scene, yeah. <laughs> so I missed that homage. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the soundtrack is fantastic. Obviously, I love like all the 80s stuff. So it's another reason this film resonated just right for me. Um, shit, I had something else I wanted to say. No, it's still I screening, right? Isn't it? It, I I, it, should, oh, it yeah. should still be yeah. screening. Oh, yeah. it's, it was uh, number one in the box office. I, I also yeah, really okay. liked John Cena's character. Uh, some people complain that he was a ridiculous character, but that's the strength of his character because he's like a hilarious satire of that kind of. He's, he's 80s. a comedian. Yeah, he's a satire <laughs> yeah. of the '80s macho man action yeah, hero yeah. character and it's just He's, hilarious how over the top he is. This is that's his whole shtick. It yeah. definitely <laughs> felt though that they wrote it and they were like, we're gonna get the rock for this. <laughs> I mean it could yeah. be the rock, but like I think The Rock might have sold it like too unironically. Like when you see John Cena there, like you can see more that it's a satire. It, it sells just, it. He's also like shaped exactly like a military guy. <laughs> yeah, like, like his body, his yeah. body type is like a GI Joe toy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I just yeah. loved how over the top gung ho he is. Like, there's this one part where they're like, "Oh, more Transformers have landed," and he's like, "All right, we're gonna go find them." And he cocks his gun while he's like in his office, which is the most <laughs> ridiculous thing, and it's so funny. That is funny. Uh, or there's a later part where they um, they're at like the hangar that the military owns. But the good guys are like inside the hangar and they've closed the garage door, right? Yeah. But this is their base and he goes up and he's like, there's a door in my way. And then the military guy starts to set up explosives to blow open the door, even though this is their base. And like, it's just so funny to me. I think that John Cena is like more in on the joke than the Oh, absolutely. Is. But yeah. that's like, that's the strength of it. Right. That, it is a joke and he's in on that it. Is and I love that about it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, or like towards the end of the movie, um, where he kind of, spoilers, but like it's Bumblebee, so you're probably okay with it. <laughs> Bumblebee um, survives. <laughs> he kind of turns to become the good guy after he realizes the Decepticons are bad, or like he's, it's confirmed that the Decepticons are bad because he yeah. suspects them the whole time. Uh, he kind of realizes the Bumblebee's on their side, right? And after the whole battle, he, he like, he calls Bumblebee soldier and gives him like the salute, <laughs> which is so funny. Uh, and then Bumblebee watched The Breakfast Club just like I did, and he, he gave him like the, the fist pump thing because it's the eighties. Yeah, that's so good. It's so good. Yeah. You were gonna okay, say I'm gonna watch it. Um, the the one thing that kind of got me is that like for for a movie that's like for kids, it's very violent. Like the fights between the yep. robots is like like not messing around. Like they're yeah. like crunching each other's heads and like. Ripping off these parts. There was one parts, was really, like, really sweet. It was like suddenly, like, whoa, this is very violent. There was um, a really sweet finishing move that I won't give away. And Optimus you probably Prime, know what I'm he holds about. what looks like an M16 with like one <laughs> hand and like is like shooting all the other. He's got his robots. like Transformers blaster gun. Yeah, yeah, which was like, it just felt that those parts were like, whoa, this is very violent. So yeah. like, even though the movie is like critiquing militarism in some ways, it's still like. Engaging in it, still engaging with it yeah. in a way that it like I don't think it realizes. <clears throat> yeah, because yeah. it, it makes like the robot fighting seem cool or yeah. yeah. Uh, the Back action is much better communicated than in the typical Michael Bay film. Um, Again, because there's so fewer Transformers, right? We know who each that of the certainly Transformers helps. are. Yeah, like, yeah. There's a character that's like built. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, that movie 
really stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it. A hot take, though. I think Aquaman is a better Okay. Uh, that is a hot movie. take. I've yeah. seen neither I of these did. Yet. I was yeah. surprised by how much I liked Aquaman. I was shocked by how much I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It was I, way I more sci-fi than I expected. I wasn't going to put it on my top five list, but Aquaman <laughs> is like, is legitimately a fun action movie that is yeah. worth seeing. Okay. Yeah. I liked Aquaman. Probably the best in the DC series. Better than Wonder Woman? Oh, you didn't like Wonder Woman that much. Yeah, I think okay. it's better than Wonder Woman. Okay. Because Wonder Woman is still like the very grim, like, yeah, it has some like super serious. Yeah. Aquaman exactly. has like people on sharks with laser guns. Yeah, because people are and comparing an octopus it. playing drums. Yeah. yeah. yeah people are comparing it to Ragnarok. Which, yeah, if it's, it, if it's it like Ragnarok, that. that's a very good thing. It is that. Be it, more yeah. like Ragnarok. Yeah. yeah. Very, yeah. very bright and colorful. Yeah. It, it somehow manages to be deep under the ocean where there's no light and also the brightest and most colorful DC movie. <laughs> yeah. um, and the, the people that I've heard talk about <laughs> have really commented on how dumb Aquaman is, but still endearing. Yeah. Like, like you still like yeah. want him to like do well. And I'm sure he he's does. He's the high yeah. school football player kind of character. But he's yeah. not. Like, he's a nice guy. And like you want him to like <laughs> yeah. be successful. You get his, get whatever and, like, the thing is that he and wants. he wears like his like Kmart slacks as he like goes and like saves people. Like, <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. Um, okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna return to our uh, our regularly scheduled programming. Um, after our hiatus and after our very special best of 2018 episode. Um, and the first pick of 2019 goes to Craftsman. So uh, what do we got? What's coming up? Um, so we've changed the format a little bit, such yes. that like only one of us needs to have seen them. We're opening up the library. Before, including Charles now. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd like to um, start off with a, a movie that I remember fondly, but I'm concerned may not hold up. I've picked several of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think it's gonna fall apart as hard as like Tombstone did. I would um, hope not. Yeah. But um, I'd like to do Twenty Eight Days Later. Okay. It's w still really well regarded. Um, I'd be interested to see like how it how it ages. Okay, I've not um, seen it, so this will be a, this will be a new. It, a new it's something that, like in my mind, I think of as like a very good movie. Okay. That, that's its reputation. Concerned that it won't be, but okay. I'll be interested to see like. We're gonna find out. So not the Sandra age. Bullock movie. The zombie <laughs> movie. <laughs> Uh, the zombie one, yeah. The zombie one. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, great. Um, so thanks for listening, everybody. Um, if you like the show, please uh, share it. Uh, please review it. That makes a really big difference. Um, please uh, like and comment and, and all those things. We always um, appreciate that. Um, and if you want to watch 28 Days Later, where is it available? Is it streaming somewhere? Or do we uh, I mean, it's been out for over a decade. So, so probably available. It's somewhere. probably available. Okay. So go, go <laughs> rent it. Check. Go rent it on Amazon. Um, and we'll see you next week for uh, 28 Days Later.